Episode two of the Woke Ish podcast. This is Ebony. And this is Zama. And this week, um, because 2019 is coming to an end and the next two weeks will be a holiday break, we thought we might um, discuss the 10 lessons that we learned over the course of 2019 um, during our What's Being Slept On segment. But before we get there, we'll start with our shout out segment. Yeah, so our first shout-out goes to Tony and – do you think it's Scene or Sign? Mm, well, you guys know her as Miss Jamaica because this video has been circulating yeah. via social media. Um, but she won Miss World 2019. So there's Miss Universe, there's Miss USA, USA there's Miss America, America, Miss Teen – yeah. And apparently there's a Miss World, yeah. which I didn't realize yeah. – um, but recently they had their pageant and Miss Jamaica won the title. Um, so what's great about that is that she's a black woman. And so I think now historically all the title winners yeah. are black women. Yeah. I don't even know how many pageants there are. I didn't realize how many until like this week when this they were. crazy. So, I mean, the fact that they're all, um, and to me, like they're all, all these women in these beauty pageants are beautiful anyway, because you kind of have to be, because yeah. technically you're the most beautiful women of those countries. Yeah. So um, it's just not, you know, there's there's always issue with me to be like uh, pageants are always kind of problematic. But yeah. I think that the you more I the read about these it. women, the more I'm like, OK, well, they're not just like these women have like careers and mm-hmm. jobs and they talk about why they it's important for them to be in pageants and the representation. Mm-hmm. And so uh, through this through these accomplishments and through these pageants recently, I myself have learned more about them. So shout out to Miss Nigeria, to Miss Jamaica. Um, But also along with that, what also I think got a lot more people to be super excited about this crowning was Miss Nigeria, Nayekachi Douglas. Uh, I'm probably saying that wrong, so I apologize. But Miss Nigeria's reaction to Miss Jamaica winning. So when Miss uh, Jamaica realized she won, she was kind of like stunned and surprised. Mm -hmm. But um, Miss Nigeria just went crazy happy and um, started screaming. And um, she was obviously very excited. And what was great about that is that she was excited for um, Miss Jamaica's win. Yeah. So a lot of people are saying that, you know, that now there's this on Twitter, everyone's saying, you know, find yourself a friend like Miss Nigeria, yeah. but kind of <laughs> highlighting that I think there's a stereotype and there's this misconception that women are very catty and that, and I think sometimes we can be like, sometimes it's, we're in a society where we're pushed against to compete against each other because there's only such few slots for women to be exceptional that we're kind of raised to believe that we have to have it. Yeah. Um, and so when it comes to beauty standards. Yeah. Especially with beauty. That's, yeah. yeah. I think that's right. And so it's really nice for, to see an example of women being happy for other women and no, 
knowing that they're all beautiful and Miss Jamaica won this. Uh, there's a I read somewhere on Twitter where it said Miss Jamaica won the title, but Miss Nigeria won our hearts. Aww. So it was just kind of nice to see that. So shout out to both of them. Yeah. It was a really great moment and kind of a sweet reminder of like how to be friends mm-hmm. and uh, how, what kind of friends we should want in our circle. Yeah, yeah, yeah this is what's up. Um, Okay, and our second shout-out, it goes to Jaden Smith. Um, So he is Will Smith and Jada Pickett Smith's son. (laughs) I don't know if he's, like, famous in his own right. Is he? He's a musician. Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, so this is regarding the Flint water crisis and what he has done to um, lend his support. So for the past three years, the First Trinity Missionary Baptist Church has been battling the Flint water crisis by handing out clean water to locals. Volunteers with the organization started giving out bottled water every day of the week, but as donations decreased, they now distribute water over the course of three days. To assist, um, rapper Jaden Smith has Uh, donated a portable water filtration unit called the water box which can supply upward of 10 gallons of filtered water every minute and he also recently donated another water box in Ellen DeGeneres's name so shout out to him I I heard that I've heard a lot of like different speculation about how much these boxes are worth but a couple million for Mm -hmm. sure yeah Um, so shout out to him and I mean it's sad that this is what these are the lengths that folks have had to go to to get clean water because you wouldn't think that we would have a clean water crisis in America, but here we are. Yeah, and we had previously kind of pointed out that Jaden Smith had done something like this, mm-hmm. but I think it's important to highlight that he's still doing it because mm-hmm. um, Flint still is in a water yeah. crisis, yeah. Um, and so I, th- I think he gets a lot of criticism about. It's really easy to make fun of the things he says. Like, he says kids shouldn't go to school. And you're like, yeah, well, when your parents are Will Smith and Jada Pekin Smith, and you can say things like that. But he's actually also doing things to contribute to actual problems. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, shout out to him for continuing to uh, be passionate about the Flint water crisis. And then our last shout-out goes to another um, video that's been going viral with a police officer, (laughs) thankfully a positive one. Um, So in the video circulating on the Internet, Officer Rodriguez responded to a disturbance call at the L.A. DMV when he realized that it was just an issue of miscommunication since the woman who they called the cops on was speaking, uh, I mean, was um, trying to communicate via sign language. So he used his American Sign Language skills to diffuse the situation and even helped her cover the cost of her ID. So something as simple as not being able to communicate um, kind of led and and there's this has always been a criticism of law enforcement is they're used to handle situations that could have been um, dealt with in a very less violent and less aggressive way so instead of simply physically removing her um, from the DMV just to make because it's the easiest thing to do um, Officer Rodriguez took the time to be able to communicate with her Um, and so I think like that highlights, I think, a very important thing where people in public service should be able to speak more than one language or should be able to communicate in more than one language because thankfully he had, um, he knew American Sign Language, 
but how many police officers actually do. And I'm sure that there's been multiple situations where people who are, are uh, hard of hearing, which I learned is the correct term because mm-hmm. deaf to some people is offensive. Mm-hmm. So I actually had a roommate who used to be hard of hearing and she taught me that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, shout out to Officer Rodriguez for handling it, I think, in the correct way. And hopefully this can... Um, inspires all of us to if we see someone and I see this sometimes being bilingual if you see someone not being able to communicate to step in and see if you can help um, if you're able to help with the communication so if you see someone and you're able to communicate because you know the language or because you know uh, you know the particular in the situation American Sign Language then like stepping up and helping Um, but yeah shout out to all three Um, and that's it for our shout out segment and now we'll move on to our in the know okay so now for our in the know segment Yes, and so our first story is a story that started off sad, then went happy, then went sad again. <laughs> so um, this is a story about, I mean, this story has been um, everywhere this week. Um, it's about the 16-year-old girl, Carol Sanchez. Um, and we're saying her name, usually you don't if they're minors, but she has, a, they've, everyone's been identifying her, so I feel comfortable in identifying her, but if she wasn't, I would not feel comfortable saying the name of a minor. So just wanted to put that out there for our listeners. Um, So she's 16, and there was a video circulating where it showed an apparent kidnapping. So she was walking in the Bronx with her mom, and all of a sudden, a van or a car pulls up, and four men are seen forcibly putting her into this car. You see her mom trying to grab onto her, and they push her down, and they take her away. It's really dramatic. It look like seeing it, you just, it looks, it's the scariest thing you can imagine as a mom, uh, as a girl um, just being because of the whole issue with one human sex trafficking you're like oh my gosh she's a young girl she's going to be trafficked and two women of color are you know at higher risks of being um, murdered and so uh, when this video started circulating a lot of people including a lot of famous people were calling out to kind of come for anyone asking anyone to come forward um if you heard anything if you knew anything just to try to find her before she was uh, trafficked or before she was murdered or because there was no no one knew why she was um kidnapped um and so it turns out that later that day she reappeared and everyone was really happy because they're like, oh, my gosh, she was released. They must have seen that there was so much attention, media attention, because it was all over the news in addition to social media. Well, it turns out that she has confessed that it was all a hoax, which stemmed from her difficult relationship with her mother, according to two poli- police officials. The officials said that the family had been contemplating a move to their native Honduras, but that Carol was adamant that she wanted to remain in the United States, which could have been a motivation for her to stage the kidnapping. 
Um, the police. Uh, so so far, they don't believe that the mom was involved. They believe that this was something only the daughter was kind of doing um, on her own. So the mom's uh, reaction was genuine. Um, but the police at this moment are trying to determine whether she or the other two men who will, will face criminal charges. Um, and so I've seen different reactions to this. Some people, like Charlemagne, was saying that um, he's done with the internet. Like, he's just done with people that, particularly, he was mad at black people because she seems to be Afro-Latina, so she seems to be a Latina who is also African-American or black. And he was just kind of, he had this whole post where he just said that, you know, this doesn't, this doesn't mean to him that he's not going to post about another missing girl, um, but that he's definitely done with the internet and done with social media and done with people until next year. And then other people like Van, Van are saying that she's a child, that we need to keep that in mind, that she was just thinking like a teenager about how to solve this problem of not wanting to move. So we need to keep that in mind in our criticism of how she handled the situation. And then there are people who are like, she needs to go to jail because there are real women, real women of color who are taken and um, the resources, one, resources that are should have been spent to other people were spent to her and this whole time it, it wasn't real. And two, it kind of, we lose credibility in our community from people when things like this happen. So I don't know how to feel about it. I just... It's it's happened so fast where I'm just kind of still trying to figure out what I think about it. And I honestly, I don't know what the consequence should be. Yeah, well, I, so I haven't been on social media or the news in at probably the last week and a half or so. So I did not know about this story. Yeah, but it was just this week, like two days ago. Yeah, I didn't hear about it, but I don't think she should go to jail. I do think that she should have to do like hella community service. Mm. Because, I mean, I like I think that we use jail as like a, oh, this is going to teach you a lesson thing. But I don't think that that's what, what should be done for a 16 year old. I think that they need to, you know, like what makes what makes it what would make a teenage girl miserable? No access to the Internet. Mm-hmm. You're going to do like a thousand hours of community service all of your Friday, Saturday and Sunday nights for the next two years will be spent I don't know shoveling shit somewhere off the side of the road you know um I you know and it's like that's how you repay the debt because yeah I mean you she did you know like there were resources and I mean essentially resources money that were spent you know investigating this and it was bs so yeah I think that she should be she should spend the next two years of her childhood being miserable and then reemerge into the world as an 18-year-old with some sense. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. No. And it just kind of highlights how desperate she must have felt. Yeah. To, and I, I mean, can't imagine yeah, being yeah. an immigrant and your parents wanting to move. Like, yeah. to a country right now that Honduras is it's a great country, but it's it's not the most stable country. Mm-hmm. So I can kind of, I can put myself in a sense of desperation where I'm like, I'm willing to do anything mm-hmm. to not move. This is where I am. And also remembering when I was 16, 
the type of things I would do is I wouldn't plan out. I would get to the part where I was like, okay, yeah, I'm going to be kidnapped and then not, you know, plan out the rest. How can you do I understand being pissed off at your mom, but to have your mom. Yeah. Okay. Maybe yeah. run away. Like, yeah, I, I mean, away. I'm not, yeah, I'm not yeah, recommending yeah. that any children run away, obviously, but if, if it comes down to run away or stage your, your, your being trafficked. Yeah. Like, could you imagine how her mom must have felt for that day? Mm-mm. What? Yeah. To have been grabbing onto your... What? Yeah. To be holding on and then feel like, oh my God, I failed her. I let her get away. Yeah. Like, I let them take her... Like, that's that's unimaginable. Like, I I mean, we've all been pissed off at our moms, but come on now. We gotta have... I mean, even at my most pissed at my mom, I couldn't imagine doing yeah. something like this terrible. Uh, even if you think it, like, not going through with it. Like, yeah. So mm. we'll keep you updated on this story. It definitely is super new. It just happened two days ago from when we're recording. So, and, you know, there's everything is just saying alleged hoax. So just like Jesse Smollett thing, it took days and weeks. And still now, he still says it yeah, was he's true. Yeah, and then isn't he like, what is he doing right now? Trying to sue or something? I, I, he's saying it's he never lied. So we don't know. There's report, but many reports are coming out saying it was a hoax. And because there hasn't been any kind of statements about look, keeping looking for suspects and trying to figure out, I have a feeling that it might be true. Wait, so did he, so you said looking for suspects. So did he, is he still claiming that these two Nigerian guys did it? Oh, no, I was talking about this. Oh, this uh, uh, yeah, okay, yeah. Okay, no, okay. because the, the police, because when she was missing, they were tweeting, yeah. like, this. they tweeted the video, and they were saying, if anyone has seen the whereabouts of Carol, please let us know. Um, but I haven't seen any tweets about um, if you know about any of the suspects, because yeah. she's, you know, you would think they would have um, inter- or um, interviewed her by now to get a sense of who, what, where she might have been, what was going on. Mm-hmm. And because we haven't gotten any of those kind of looking for suspect details, I, I believe that it, it probably is yeah. what they're saying, which is that she she staged it. Yeah. But what I mean, what just occurred to me is like, you know, about the about what you were saying about Jesse Smollett. Like, if he was lying, and he is cla- he's still claiming that he was not lying, and he's willing to allow these two black men to be charged for a lie, how how interested in social justice is he really? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you've got to. And yeah. even, I mean, even this little girl, not to say that she was looking for social justice, like, I'm sure that that was not at the heart of her, whatever this was, but if you arranged to have some of your friends, yeah, some of your black friends help you stage a kidnapping and then they get charged for this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, we gotta think bigger than, like, our, our little, you know, isolated or, like, siloed m- mission um, and think about what effect it will have on other people yeah that's why therapy is important communities of color immigrant communities man uh you, you've got to be able to learn how to communicate with each other because i'm sure it wasn't d- night and day like this is a long lots of years a dynamic in which this girl did not feel comfortable enough to tell her parents uh, what she felt to the point where she thought it was better to stage yeah. a kidnapping. Yeah. And she's kind of, I mean, it does suck. Like, she's pretty old for them to 
you know, like, it, it's painful for kids to move from one school to another. Yeah. Because they, you know, at the t- for parents, they're looking at it, you know, as though, and I, and I got to applaud my mom for that because that was something that she did prioritize. Like, there was a point where in ninth grade, like, my dad wanted to move and my mom asked me, like, do you want to leave school? And at that point, I did, like, I did not. I'm like, this, these are my friends. Like, you know, like, now I'm, I, I, I initially, I didn't want to go to that high school. But then once I did and I made friends, I'm like, no, I can't imagine my life. I can't imagine having to start over, you know? And that's a pretty traumatizing experience mm-hmm. for kids, like, being ripped from the life that they've known and, like, okay, now, here, start over, make some friends, figure out your life, you know? I think especially in this era with, like, all of the shit that kids are going through and witnessing and all of the trauma. Yeah. I, so, but not to say that she should not get in trouble. No, she needs to be in trouble. But <laughs> but I don't think it needs to be in the form of jail. Yeah. Yeah, so we'll keep you guys updated with this story. Um. So the second story I wanted to bring up is about vaping. Um, so there's new evidence of the long-term risks of vaping. So there's been a lot of talk about vaping and how it might not be good, but there's actually evidence now from a study. So, um, so far this year, 52 people have died and more than 2,000 have been hospitalized because of lung injuries caused by vaping. And a new study finds that e-cigarettes are linked to increased risk of chronic lung disease, including emphysema, chronic bronchitis, and COPD, um, which is like a lung lung issues with your lung, um, along with other, in addition to other um, issues, um, as well as weakened immune defenses. Um, it's this article that I got this information um, from, which is from NPR, said that while many of the worst cases have been linked to black market products that contain THC, so that that's like, like vaping marijuana, um, new evidence suggests something more, that people who vape nicotine are more likely to get respiratory diseases, including chronic bronchitis and emphysema. So some people were saying, well, yeah, the people who vape are getting sick because it's people who are vaping marijuana, not people who are vaping nicotine. Because we know that if you smoke, like smoking marijuana is actually worse for your lungs than smoking cigarettes. Um, So that's why some people prefer, they would say that, well, that's why I vape or that's why I eat edibles because it's better for my lungs. So this study is saying that well, that might not it might not be completely un completely safe to switch to vaping uh, marijuana, but what this product what this article is focusing um, more on are people who are vaping nicotine. Um, so Stan Glantz, who's a professor of medicine at University of California, San Francisco, and his collaborators assessed data from a study of about thirty thousand people, which includes smokers and people who vape. Um, So they started out with people who didn't have any diagnosis of respiratory disease and then followed them in time for three years. So they followed 30,000 people for three years. The glance said that the risk appears to be the highest among adults who both vape and smoke, which often happens when people turn to vaping in an attempt to quit smoking but then aren't able to completely give up cigarettes. Mm So just kind of highlighting that it may not, one, it may not be the best to suggest to people that they vape instead, you know, to wean off of smoking if you're not also making sure that they stop smoking. Um, But that 
vaping might be harmful in itself. So it may not be the best long-term solution to get people to switch to vaping if we want to reduce their risk of heart, of lung disease. But also, you know, with the increase of teenagers and young people vaping, this is kind of an indication that lung disease might be something that we need to look um, into and to more preventative screenings for people as they grow older. So right now, teenagers who have been vaping since high school may not be getting lung diseases or issues that have to do with their lungs or lung infections. Um, people who are smoking marijuana and vaping, uh, vaping it, we might not know how much better it is than just smoking it or if it's, uh, if it's bad for you. Um, but what this is indicating is that it's not completely safe and that there are links to increased risk. So I think that this is something that um, medical researchers, that um, um, just people should keep an eye out for, that the government should keep in mind that maybe right if we're seeing um, hints of this, then this is going to be a problem 10, 15, 20 years from now. So definitely I think something that we're going to have to keep a lookout for as a population um, because... We don't want this to be one of the reasons. We don't want to see a huge increase in lung disease among people in our cohort in 20 years. So um, this is just one study. And, you know, people always say, you know, you can't make generalizations or assumptions about a certain group of people, that these are already people who smoke, so they may already not be as healthy, that we don't know how long they've been smoking. There's a difference between people who smoke 10 years and who smoke five years. It depends on how much you smoke. But this is just kind of giving you an idea that um, in this study, there's an indication that there is an increased risk for people who are vaping nicotine. Why is it recommended that people, or why are folks recommending that people switch from smoking cigarettes to vaping? Because I think they're saying uh, there's more carcinogens in cigarettes than there's in more, the jewel. But there the are carcinogens, like nicotine is, carcinogenic so it's like yes you're... so they're saying it was but be- they thought it was better because there was less chemicals less poison mm-hmm. in a jewel vape yeah. but now we're realizing but the risk is still there yeah so it's like okay you'll this is cancer causing but just a little less yes 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 okay gotcha. yeah yeah i think i mean so just logically right you when you smoke a vape you're not you're you're not aware of how like what the equivalent in the mm-hmm. number of cigarettes are. So I feel like that's what the root the root mm-hmm. of this is is like you could be vaping and you're like people vape all day. Yeah. You know, and like so that could be the equivalent of I mean I'm just this is arbitrary, but you know, two packs of cigarettes. Mm-hmm. And maybe you wouldn't have smoked two packs of cigarettes. It's kinda like you know, having cash versus having a debit card. Yeah. Like, yeah. when you don't feel the cash leaving your hand, you're just kind of swiping, yeah. you know, just real track. haphazardly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I think it, it, it I mean, it makes, it makes sense. Um, I don't know. I feel like it's, the nicotine, you're just, yeah, you're just swapping your poisons. Yeah, I yeah. I feel like, and then also not being able to keep track of how much you're smoking. 
So yeah, if you, I, I mean, kids especially should not be because you're also raising your, um, you're also increasing your tolerance. Yeah. You know, so then you have to smoke more to get the same. I don't know what cigarettes give you a buzz or something. Yeah. Yeah, to get the same buzz, you know. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Okay, so our next in the know story is about this stupid, <laughs> stupid um, 19-year-old man who, shoot, do I even have his name here? Um, who was arrested in connection with mercury spills at three Houston businesses um, yesterday. So this was on the 17th after he tried to sell 11 pounds, 11 pounds of the toxic metal that he allegedly stole from an abandoned chemical lab, according to reports. So dozens of people had to be hosed down and a pregnant woman was hospitalized as a precaution because of the spills. He sold small amounts, apparently, of mercury for $20 to unidentified people at a Walmart and Shell gas station less than a mile from the abandoned building that he claims to have taken these chemicals from. Um, so he himself sought treatment early Saturday in a hospital emergency room where about five ounces of mercury fell out of his pocket and backpack, causing it to spill on the floor while he was being assessed by a nurse. You know what happened next? The emergency room <laughs> had to be shut down while a hazmat team decontaminated the premises. This is how toxic mercury is, and he's just yeah. walking around with it in his backpack and back pocket like an idiot. Um, so additional testing detected mercury inside Walmart, where he was like he was selling it outside of, um, including at a McDonald's inside the store. Um, the Houston Health Department said late Monday, adding that possible contamination was being investigated at a nearby convenience store called Bucky's, which is huge. Uh, Bucky's are huge, and so there's so many people that could have been exposed to it. Yeah, yeah. Just I mean, Ugh. yeah. Um, so it was unclear whether the mercury detected inside the Walmart was from an additional spill or from being tracked there by people's shoes. Um, about 60 people were found to have trace amounts of mercury contamination in their lower extremities and were decontaminated at the scene as a precaution. What an idiot. I, so this, this, this in a no segment you. is just filled with teenagers that are making yeah, dumbass decisions. Like, true. why are you carrying... Okay, so... Obviously, if this is like, I mean, this is a, like the sort of like black market, yeah. you know, sell of toxic metal. If you're going to engage in some activity like this, shouldn't you do a little bit of research to know that, hey, maybe I shouldn't have this in my back pocket? I don't think he knew what it was. That's the only explanation to me is he saw a chemical and he figured I can sell it as a drug. <laughs> and he told people, hey, this is a cool new drug. That will get you high. I hope to because God. he's sell because I don't know what else someone could use mercury for. Like twenty dollars worth of mercury, and he's such an idiot. I wonder why he's like what he was, how he was feeling like sick wise, where he himself was like, let me go to the emergency room, but that he couldn't put two and two. To, I just and. Was it labeled? Did he just not know what mercury is? This is why education is super important. This is because why kids stay if in he school. would have paid attention in chemistry class and he would know or history that people have died uh, by being exposed through mercury yeah, poisoning, um, being poisoned by mercury. So I, I, when you first told me this story, I was like, 
Wait, Mercury? He was selling it to people for $20 at a Walmart? Like, I wonder just... what he was selling it in. Like, what kind yeah. of containers? And then did he bag it himself? He must have. And then, like, proceed to eat his french fries and lick the salt off his fingers yeah. after? Like, they need to be monitoring him because, good lord. And he, and to expose other people because you're, you're being, you know, you're ignorant. <laughs> and you are, are not thinking things through. This is this is the desperation. Yeah, you know, this is why we need this is why we need to improve our economy because these are the lengths that people go to to get money. And then a chemo- an abandoned chemical lab. What is that <laughs> from an abandoned chemical lab? Like, uh, no, we we can't abandon chemical poisonous. Like, yeah, <laughs> especially if they have poisonous material. Like, it's not just on him. Like, yeah, he shouldn't, no, people sure. like him should not have access to things that could poison you. You're right. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah, this story was definitely a mess. Yeah. Okay, and then our last story, also a mess, um, is, so I'm going to read their quotes, so bear with me because it's a little bit lengthy, but it's juicy. So rapper 50 Cent has had some words. I mean, he always has words, but this time they're being directed at Oprah. Um, over the past week after news surfaced about her forthcoming documentary about Russell Simmons' sexual abuse accusers. So she is apparently the executive producer of what she's calling a hashtag MeToo film. So 50 Cent took to Instagram, as he typically does, to say, I don't understand why Oprah is going after black men. No Harvey Weinstein, no Epstein, just Michael Jackson and Russell Simmons. This shit is sad. Gail hit R. Kelly with the Death Blow documentary. Every time I hear Michael Jackson, I don't know whether to dance or think about the little boy's butts. <laughs> He's an idiot. Oh my god. These documentaries are publicly convicting their targets. It makes them guilty till proven innocent. And then Simmons also took to Instagram to say, I mean, he was much more polite about it in his approach. Um, Dearest Oprah, you have been a shining light to my family and my community, contributing so much to my life that I couldn't list a fraction of it in this blog. I have given you the gift of meditation and the groundbreaking book, The Power of Now. We bonded, to say the least. I feel like I need to read that book. I don't know. (laughs) Um, This is why it's so troubling that you choose me to single out in your recent documentary. I have already admitted to being a playboy, more appropriately titled today, Womanizer, sleeping with and putting myself in more compromising situations than almost any man I know. Not eight or 14,000 like Warren Beatty or Wilt Chamberlain, but still an embarrassing number. So many that some could reinterpret or reimagine a different recollection of the same experiences. Please note that your producer said that this upcoming doc was to focus only on three hand-chosen women. I have refused to get in the mud with any accusers, but let's acknowledge what I have shared. I have taken and passed nine three-hour lie detector tests taken for my daughters. Mm. That these stories have been passed on by CNN, NBC, BuzzFeed, uh, New York Post, New York Mag, and others. Now that you have reviewed the facts and you should have learned what I know, that these stories are unusable and that hurt people hurt people. Today I received a call from an old girlfriend from the early 1980s, which means that they are using my words slash evidence against me and their commitment 
in parentheses, all of the claims are 25 to 40 years old, in end parentheses, it is impossible to prove what happened 40 years ago. But in my case, proof exists of what didn't happen. Mostly signed letters from their own parents, siblings, roommates, band members, interns, and in the case of two of your three accusers, their own words in their books. Shocking how many people have misused this important, powerful revolution for relevance and money. Maybe you should name your documentary, quote, Flavor of Love. In closing, I am guilty of exploiting, supporting, and making the soundtrack for a grossly unequal society. But I have never been violent or forced myself on anyone. Still, I am here to help support a necessary shift in power and consciousness. Let us get to work on uplifting humanity and put this moment and old narrative behind us. End quote. So that was a pretty. Yeah, it was very it was, eloquent. Yeah, and I, he wasn't saying like, "Yo, I her. hate you. Please yeah. don't do this." And you know, and like he they were friends. Hurt. Yeah, he seemed hurt more yeah. than anything, and like very close. And so I, 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 I don't know. I think it's a pretty underhanded approach to sign on to something and one not inform your friend um, that you're doing it, and. I, I don't know. It, I think that the, you know, the Me Too movement has um, become a weapon, I think, in some pretty sad and ugly ways because it, I think that in, in, and this happens to a lot of movements, right? Like, in the inception, it's about protecting victims. And then over time, it becomes a tool for capitalism, um, and I don't know the facts of what, you know, Russell Simmons has or has not done. Um, I do think that, you know, nine three-hour um, lie detectors is kind of telling, even though, granted, you know, there's always this caveat that, like, oh, you can, there are ways that you can manipulate that, and yada, 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 I get it. Nine three-hour lie detectors sounds pretty extensive, Um I mean, and I'm focusing on his quote because 50 Cent is an idiot, but, <laughs> you know, I, though I do, part of me understands or I guess at the very most empathizes um, with where he's coming from because essentially what he's saying is, you know, why are you targeting black men who he sees already as being the sort of pariahs of society, you know, and kind of existing on the periphery, like, you know, majority of us know. Um, but where I, where my um, thoughts kind of deviate from his is that I do think that it's necessary for folks to police their own groups um, because if we don't, we leave it up to outsiders to do that for us. Um, and But I do think that there's a way of doing it that's tasteful, that that you know achieves the desired results and so if if the goal is to teach and you know and the goal is to raise consciousness um like russell said and to um shift the power from being shift power from being in the hands of like very few and um very few men specifically i don't know that this well, I don't know. I don't know that this documentary necessarily will achieve that. 
Um, I do think that it will stir up some conversation and, you know, of course, controversy, which I think is probably the goal. Um, it's supposed to premiere at next year's Sundance Film Festival, mm-hmm. which I think is in January. Hopefully I'm going to go. Not for this, but, you know, <laughs> for my own sure. purposes. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't know. I think that it's a slippery slope. I can't say that it's all bad. I also can't say that it's all good. I, you know, um, like probably most people look up to Oprah, but I don't idolize her. So I do recognize that she is capable of, you know, making a mistake. And she has in the past. Like, you know, she has had her own, um, she has previously had to settle a suit because of her, one of her schools, her girls' schools in Africa, like, apparently one of the uh, teachers or whatever they're called, magistrates, I don't know if I'm saying that word right, but that she hired was molesting girls Mm. there, and she had, you know, so she's not so distant from this that she should be going, in my opinion, going over her friend's head and making a documentary about him um, an accusatory documentary about him without having sat down with him or giving at least giving him the opportunity to share his side of the story as well. Um, so I, I should say that I, maybe I should get, preface this, or I guess I can't preface it because I've already said it, but give a disclaimer that I am, so I consider myself a gender scholar, right, but I study masculinity and femininity, and I noticed that research in general, people in general, that, you know, there's a tendency to privilege the, um, I guess the, 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 uh, I don't know, less privileged, more oppressed group, and to then silence the group that is considered to be in the, um, more superior position. Where I think it gets murky is with people of color, because it's really hard to say, that black men, because they are men, are in a more privileged position than black women, given that in our society, black men tend to be the ones that um, are targeted, you know, to a greater extent than black women. And so it, I don't know, it's really hard, it's really slippery, but I, I, I think that both parties should be allowed to give their... Um, sort of recollection of history, especially with something that happened 40 years ago. Like, that's, you know, damn near two of my lifetime, you know, two of my lifetimes. Like, that's that's hard. And, and especially because we know that the movement has been co-opted and that it, it it's an original intention has sort of, um, I won't say that it dissipated, but I think that folks have lost sight of what the Me Too movement um, what the goal is, because there's, you know, like even like Har- freaking Harvey Weinstein in an interview this past week. Did you did mm. you read about that interview where he's like talking about how all of his um, hard work has been sort of washed away and forgotten because of what happened? Like, what do you mean what happened? You know, like it, it, it. He has faced so little repercussions that he has reimagined this as something that happened to him, and he's saying that like oh, you know, I employed women in, um, in filmmaking before it was in vogue. Like, I put women in 
position in positions as actresses and directors and producers, et cetera, et cetera. But it's like also, what did you require women to do to get that opportunity? Like, it's not like, oh, you know, you have done all this work and you're deserving of this title or this position. But show me what you can do for me, what sexual favors you can do for me in order to get this this opportunity. And yet he is saying that essentially the world has stripped him of his legacy. Like, no, you did this to yourself. But yet there has been nothing to come of that. Like, no documentation, no documentaries. Like, um, So I don't know. I, I think it's a double-edged sword. You know, there ne- we need to police within our own groups, but we also need to make sure that we aren't being used as a pawn by capitalism to, you know, exploit the stories of our people. I think that there has to and granted black women, I don't want to take this away from us, black women do do a do do. Black women do a lot to protect black men. I'm not gonna say Oprah specifically, but black women in general. Um so I'm not taking that away from us, but also, you know, I will be taking this sort of with a grain of salt. Yeah, and I just wanted to say I agree with like a lot of what you're saying and also as a gender scholar and one of the classes that I have to teach is a theory class. And I think one of the things about, and being a mom, the mother of a son, I think one of the things about oppressive systems is we only look at them. Uh, it's easier to look at the, it, as you said, from one experience. And so just from the experiences of women. So what has the experiences of women under patriarchy been? But we don't look that men themselves are also victims of patriarchy because it's an oppressive system for everyone. Yes, men have more benefits in some areas and they're more privileged because they're considered to be the group that holds uh, the more, quote unquote, superior group um, that has historically had uh, more privileges. But there's also a lot of negative things that men get uh, that men receive from patriarchy. And so with the Me Too movement, I feel that there's there's victimization for both sides, too. The way that men have been raised, the way that men are uh, are um, like in women themselves. It's like like with my son, if he cries a lot, people tell me he he's too whiny for a boy. And it's like he's a baby and they're already telling they're already gendering him and saying he's not male enough in his crying that That, like made my body hot yeah (laughs) and it's and it's it's women who tell me this it's not men who tell me your baby's quiet it's women who are like hey like or you know don't coddle him too much or hey like you know he's going after to a man yeah (laughs) or like if he goes for a doll like hey like don't let him play with that or if he wears a purple shirt like hey like you know that's not or you know if someone wants to give me something they're like oh but it's purple is that okay and it's like women and men are both, you know, victims of this system. And in Me Too, I think uh, Russell Simmons has a point in that he himself, there has he's trying to say, like, in how I was young, in my relationships with women, I did things that I shouldn't have done. But society itself has taught men that this is what it's like to be a man. These are the expectations of men. And even though it's easier to see how women are victims, which we are, we also play because I find myself playing into the lot of into a lot of the gendering of my son. Mm-hmm. So that's how I'm able to say like, oh, well, this patriarchal system is set in place so that 
everyone is plays a role in maintaining this unequal um, distribution um, between men and women. Mm-hmm. So I think that we need to keep that in mind too, um, like you said, with the whole Me Too movement. And then it's further complicated by race. Yes, so, like it always is, yeah. especially when it comes to sexuality. Yeah. You know? like, if you're if you're listening to this and you're at all interested in reading about well, what I consider to be probably one of the best um, intersectional books on um, sexuality, check out um, Patricia Hill Collins' Black Sexual Politics, mm. and she, I, I I mean, every theory that she discusses could be is applicable to the Me Too movement in this situation in particular, where historically. Black men and their sexuality mm. have been weaponized mm. and they have been framed as rapists by rapists themselves, mm. you know? And so you, I mean, and this has been since the, fa- like, this is fundamental to this country. Like, this has been since the beginning of time. And again, like I said, I was not there. I don't know what Russell Simmons did or did not do. But I do think that we have to caution ourselves in, 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 thinking about black in the ways that we frame black men's sexuality in the ways that we apply and we take you know in this I'm using air quotes but in the way that we take um, westernized um, westernized contexts and apply them to situations regarding black men and women and their sexualities because they're like we exist in American society but we have our own cultures and so the way that this is likely going to be framed in this documentary. It's kind of, I mean, it's just painful for me to think about because we're reifying and digging, like dredging up really old stereotypes. Um, and again, just allowing, just allowing white men to kind of, you know, slide by as they have historically while, you know, shining a light, a flashlight on black men and thinking about, you know, I mean, R. Kelly is as guilty as the day is long, but, you know, his his documentary, um, Michael Jackson, which we had an episode or probably a few episodes mm-hmm. where we talked about that, and I had no qualms about that documentary. Like, I, I think that Michael Jackson was probably guilty, too. Um, I, I mean, I know that a lot of black people are probably, like, shifting uncomfortably in their seats listening to that, but, I mean, that's just what I, that's how I feel. This documentary, for some reason, it's a bit more unsettling for me just because, I mean, knowing the little that I do know about Russell Simmons and kind of what he stands for, granted, he has not always been the man that he is today, um, but it just, there's just something weird to me about how Oprah went about this, Um, and like he said, a lot of major news outlets passed up on this story. I don't know if they're, you know, and then Oprah, she is, you know, she has her own money that she that she can use to back something like this. So she does not need the support of these mm-hmm. other, you know, media conglomerates. Like she could do this on her own. So is she being is she being used? I I don't know. Yeah, so we'll definitely maybe dedicate stuff. an episode to yeah. the breakdown of this after we read about it, maybe see it and yeah. see how we feel. But no, I agree. I think that it's not just, you can't just hashtag me to something and expect me as a woman to be like, sure, exactly. yes, me too, exactly. I'm all aboard. Like, that's not how my 
political alliance works. And I think that's sometimes the expectation that women have of us and particularly maybe the experiences of white women where it might be easier for them just to be like, oh, as a woman of color, me too, me too, me too, right? And it's like, no, like our experiences are shaped by additional powers of oppression Mm -hmm. that we also need that complicate our feelings. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that that's where that's how it should be. Like, if somebody just takes everything wholesale as the gospel, I think that's suspicious. That is suspicious. Like, it should not be like, oh, I'm black. I'm a black woman. Everything black. Everything woman. I'm all you know. Like, I'm down all the time. Like, no, you got you got to evaluate everything. You know, take everything with a grain of salt because again, capitalism. Yes. Sometimes people like the color green more than they like you know their whatever. I'm I'm just. But, um, yeah. So that wraps up that story and our In the Know segment. And now we'll transition into our What's Being Slept On segment. So I strongly suggest that you wake the fuck up. Okay, so now for our What's Being Slept On segment. So as I kind of said when we started this episode, we're going to be talking about some of the lessons that we learned this year. So we're each going to discuss our top five lessons that 2019 has taught us. So my number one lesson is to trust my expertise slash my gut and to be persistent in that. So I, I thought that that was, you know, my the biggest lesson, because I tend to be, you know, I tend to question myself a lot and have a lot of self-doubt, which I think is sort of inherent in this, um, you know, educational process, but it has also manifested itself in other areas outside of academia, you know, so I went through several years where I questioned For instance, like the thing that I'm most passionate about, right, is my writing. And I was questioning that, like whether or not I was good enough, whether or not I could make this a thing, a career, or whether or not it's something that I should continue to pursue. And there was some like a sort of switch that went off probably at the end of last year where I, well, one, I had become exposed to, uh, well, I I guess I had already been exposed to Malcolm Gladwell, but I had actually started to you know, drink the Kool-Aid and to buy into it. And I also had received some advice from a mentor, a writing mentor that I um, acquired earlier this year that, you know, if this is the thing that you want to do, you need to be doing it. And you need to be doing it every day and you need to be doing it to the best of your ability. So I decided that I was going to turn off that self-doubt and questioning myself and dive in head first and since then I have seen so much good come from that just in this past year and then also remaining steadfast in that so being persistent and continuing you know to do that thing and not you know in in because there have been periods of time where I felt unmotivated you know like there were I went from so for my novel I went from writing a chapter probably you know, every week or every other week to not being able to write for three months. And so, but I don't consider that like an inconsistency. You know, I, like writer's block is real and granted there are different reasons for it, but 
I picked once I once I regained my vision, I continued with it and remained persistent. So I think that that yeah, that was my number one lesson. Number two, wedding planning is not fun. <laughs> I have mentioned that before on the podcast, and I have finally um, decided to buckle down and get a wedding planner because okay. good lord, yeah, it's just not. There are just so many moving parts, and every time I feel like I've gotten a handle on it, somebody's like, oh, well, have you thought about this? And I'm like, oh, shit, I did not know about that, and now I feel like I'm back at square one and having to figure everything out um, all over again. And so I figure why not employ someone who has done this several times for other people and already you know, has things down to a science. And she's a black woman, so I figure I should be employing um, I should be employing black women, you know, and or I, I that sounded weird. I should be. Did that sound weird? Investing in, investing or in, yes, providing opportunity, yeah, yes, supporting, supporting. Yeah. Okay, and yes, number three, I don't have to prove anything to anyone. That is that is probably neck and neck with number one, but I put it at number three because I think I'm still having to remind myself of it. It isn't as it isn't as intuitive or ingrained yet as I hope it becomes in the future because I, I, I think that, you know, no matter what we do, I guess unless, nope, nope, I was going to say unless you're an entrepreneur, but even then you're still sort of, you're still sort of at the mercy of your customers or your clients or whatever, right? So we all always will have a boss or a, you know, a supervisor or someone that we do to a certain extent have to prove ourselves to, but I guess I I have stopped allowing that to paralyze me, you know, and feeling like, oh, my God, I need to, like, you know, and, and not allowing it to be a source of my anxiety. Like, oh, my God, what is, does so-and-so think this about me? Or does, you know, do, does so-and-so think that I'm capable of X, Y, and Z? And instead, just having faith in my capabilities and my capacity to achieve whatever it is that I have set my mind to and not worrying about outside opinions because I you know I I felt like every time I sat down with my advisor I was like a ball of nerves like oh my god like what is she gonna think about yada 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 but then I came to the realization that my advisor ain't sitting around thinking about what I think about her so (laughs) I need to focus on myself because that you know at Ultimately, this is my life, and I'm the conductor of it. Um, I mean, well, I'll say that God is the conductor of it, but I, you know, am making decisions and things like that and know what's, you know, best for me, and I know that above and beyond anyone else. So you need to trust that and, you know, move forward accordingly. Number four, so I have learned how critical it is to share the wealth, and by wealth, I mean knowledge and experience. So I talked about on last week's episode that I had and you know that I had my first event and the the reason for that event was initially sort of self-serving. I mean, I guess it still was because I learned a lot, made some valuable connections, but I wanted to encourage other creatives to collaborate, you know, and to engage in collaborative relationships because I know that a lot of the time the reason why we steer clear of those things is because we don't want anybody to steal our ideas or to get something to get something more easily than we got it, you know? So if we had to teach ourselves how to, for instance, write a book, then we don't want to go out and give 
someone else our blueprint and then they not have to do the work. That is such a um that is such a damaging way of thinking and it I think it hinders a lot of growth not just for other folks but for us as well because who knows like you could find a you could find some benefit in mentoring or in teaching and you actually do learn a lot when you teach because then people ask you questions they push you to think differently or to expand the way that you're thinking to shift some things um, you could even become enlightened in the process of sharing and in mentoring and I also think that this is particularly important for people of color and I'll speak to black people in particular because I think that we find ourselves having to reinvent the wheel generation after generation because we are not sharing knowledge and experience and sharing the wealth in that way we want to keep everything to ourselves and um, protect it with our lives because we feel like this is all we've got but you got more than that and community should be everything and when you you know help someone else they help someone else they help someone else and then that pushes you know essentially culture forward or the industry or whatever pushes it forward and then now you have people looking at you for guidance and for mentorship and support so pay it forward lift as you climb all of those, you know, metaphors, I think that those are of critical importance. And so I want to continue to have events like I had, but also when I meet, you know, individuals that are trying to get, even though I don't feel like I at this point have gotten very far, but if people are trying to get where I am, I want to make sure that I am um, helping and supporting them and not kind of hoarding everything that I have learned. And then number five, um, and this is also something that I'm still working on, but it's something that this year has taught me that I need to prioritize, is how to balance, on the one hand, being multifaceted, but then on the other, focus. You know, so I have a ton of interests, um, as you have probably surmised from listening to this podcast. I, I on the, you know, while I... I'm an academic. I also have all of these like creative interests and things that I have um, gotten involved in or want to get involved in, but I cannot do everything at once. And so I'm trying to, you know, prioritize and make sure that I shift my priorities depending on the season. Um, so just because, you know, over the past, you know, over the past semester or the fall, season say my dissertation has been my focus next semester if an opportunity presents itself I might have to shift gears a little bit or even from day to day week to week month to month you know just making sure that I'm evaluating my priorities and prioritizing accordingly and not spreading myself too thin because if I everything can't get 100% of the focus so you're always going to be lacking in one area if you are splitting your focus across multiple things so not to say that I or anyone else should narrow their focus to one thing if that's not where your heart is, but making sure that you're, you know, working toward a balance in the most efficient and effective ways. So getting things done, but also, you know, having multiple interests. And yeah, that wraps up my five. Yeah, so my five are based on just my experience this year in applying for jobs and obtaining a job, kind of wrapping up what's 
going to be my last year in graduate school and then wrapping up the first year of, I guess, being a parent. So the first thing I learned, which um, is R number six, is a no doesn't mean you suck. And I think that's because, so I didn't apply to as many jobs as most people did because I had more constraints, seeing as I have a partner who needed to, he, he needs to live in specific places for his job. And being a parent, um, there are certain places that I needed to, you know, there has to be a place where it has a really good school district, not just a college town or, um, so there's a lot. So I ended up only applying to about 35 uh, schools, whereas most people apply to 70. And I guess technically all of them rejected me except for one. Even though I got interviews from a few places, in, in the end, they, you know, I only received an offer from one school. So it was hard not to to take the no's and the rejections personal. And I know they tell you in graduate school it's not personal. And even my advisor told me it's not that you lost a job. When I was telling her about how nervous I was about the job, after I got an on-campus interview, she told me if I didn't get it, it wasn't because I lost it. It was because I was beat because it's just very competitive. So I think what I've learned is just because someone tell, gives you a no, it doesn't mean that it just means that you're not right for them. That they're not seeing the potential that you have, that they just don't see how great you could have been, that maybe just in the end, I will I will look back and be very thankful. And now I do. Like, I'm very thankful that I got the job that I was offered because ultimately that's the best fit for me and my family. But um, it's hard in the moment not to take rejection as someone telling you you suck, especially when it's something that has to do with original content. So, like, you know, if my partner is trying to have us make a sale and he's trying to sell you something and they tell you no, it's nothing about him. It's like they don't want the product. But with, like, Ebony and her writing or me and, like, my research project or, you know, selling myself, then it, it becomes harder to not take a no as, oh, well, you don't like my thoughts. You don't like my ideas, so I must suck. Um, so I think that's what I learned is, like, no's doesn't mean you suck. Number seven is I'm going to mess up as a parent no matter how hard I try to avoid my parents' mistakes. And I think for a long time, it was very easy to say, well, this is what I'm not going to do because my parents did this and I'm not going to do that. And my parents and I see other parents do this and I'm not going to do that. And I didn't like when my parents did this, so I'm not going to do that. It's really hard to think that you can plan out things and then you become a parent and then you realize it is just everything you know, every handbook there is just goes out the window because it's just... It's so shaped by your kid's personality. It's shaped by your personality. It's shaped by how tired you are. It's shaped at by what you have going on. And so there was a lot of things that I didn't that I told myself like, okay, well, it's I'm just gonna let him cry, and that's gonna teach him how to self-soothe, and it's gonna be fine. And I just know that this is the best for him, so it's gonna be easy because I know that he needs this. So if I do that, this is what's gonna happen. But 10 minutes of hearing him cry, you're just kind of like, wait, then maybe that's not the best thing. Like, maybe this isn't what I do. And so I just, you know, I'm learning as his first year wrapped up is that 
it's just impossible for me to think that I can avoid making mistakes because I'm educated, because I'm reading about, I'm actively reading about things, and because I want to use my own experience with my parents as like a, this is what I did like and this is what I didn't like. Because ultimately, like, being a parent is so hard. It's a day-by-day thing, and you just really try your best. And that's not something I really realized until, and I don't think it's something you can realize until you experience it. And then the number eight is you can do more than you think uh, you can, both physically and emotionally. So going through pregnancy and through childbirth, I've learned that I can physically do more than I thought I could. Just like your body itself without trying because your body's just, you know, it's in some way my body made a baby and my body was able to just go through the contractions and go through the delivery. And I... I could, there's nothing I really did. I couldn't be like, okay, body, grow baby, or okay, body. Like, it's just, there's a part of your, of the physical sense that you're like, wow, like, I, you know, I finished one year of breastfeeding. I, I did my goal. And I just, I was so surprised that, like, wow, for a year, like, my body fed another body. And I didn't know that that was something that I was capable of doing. And then emotionally, just being like, I did not know that I was able to go on two hours of sleep. I did God. not know that I was able <laughs> to just like, you know, you, you, you get put. In, so my partner went out of town for a week and it was just me and, the, and our son. And I just, you know, three to four days in, I was like, I just could not six months ago or I just remember when the baby when my partner had to go back to work and I was just thinking like there's no way I can do this by myself Mm -hmm. like there's no way I can take care of this kid by myself without anyone like that's too much I just I need help and then fast forward a year and I was able to and I kept the routine yeah it was really hard and sometimes I was counting down till it was his bedtime because I was like ready to have my alone time and ready for him to be you know just uh, he can be a handful but it you experience things you know in a different sense of what you can do being a parent so that was something that it was kind of nice to see that translates kind of over to other aspects of my life in terms of oh well I can hand I know I can write my dissertation in two months because I was able to do this with my son like I was able to go through this and this and this and that's nothing compared to that so it's nice to have kind of like a a baseline of how tough things can get and how I can still kind of get through it. And then number nine, some people will not change their minds about issues of social justice, even when they're presented with facts or even when you're trying the compassionate route. Um, And I just have to deal with that fact. And so I think in having family who, in being uh, with someone who has family and being with someone who is a conservative Republican, I just... The, you're, I don't know if this is my age or our cohort or being in academia or being where my friends are mostly liberal. You just kind of assume that if people just see this point of view because it's, you know, the one about equality because it's the one about fairness, then they obviously will see that that's what should be best. But there are some people who just will not, no matter what. 
And I think that that was really hard for me to accept because I believe that I could get anyone to see my perspective and see that, you know, even saying about my experience with immigration, and I'm like, well, if they think that the wall is a good thing, once I tell them about my experience, they'll see and they'll be like, oh, well, that's true. If there was this wall, we wouldn't have people like Zelma. And what I've learned is, no, they just say, well, you know, you didn't do it the right way, but thankfully, you know, it turned out good for you, but you're an exception. And so it's just, you know, it was just kind of a moment of myself to be like, I can, I need to be smart about my emotional labor and about who I, um, it, the situations that I expose myself to. And I think as a professor and trying to be like, I can present knowledge but not expect every student to think what, you know, in talking about intersectionality or in talking about uh, feminist issues or in talking about racial justice. Like there will be students who are just going to have a certain frame of mind, a certain belief system that it it will not change. And um, just learning to accept that and be okay with that. And then the last thing, um, number 10, is what I've learned this year is that the best things in life aren't things but moments and actually very simple moments. So I, I don't I have this thing where I like it's kind of like the buildup of something becomes so big that when it happens, it's kind of like it's too much. Mm-hmm. So I do that with my birthdays. I do that with Christmas. It's like I love the buildup to it more that when the day comes, I'm kind of like, well, this day is going to be over soon. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, yeah. man, it's already noon. Like, this is Christmas. Like, yeah. fuck. Like, I wanted it to be more. And so I think for me, learning this year with just being with my son, it was like the best moments weren't – Uh, You know, when I got a job, it was great. And getting a job was great because that meant stability. But like the proudest moments or the best moments or the happiest moments were just like, you know, walking to the park with my son and him like laughing about the, you know, the dumbest things or about like, you know, him doing something silly and just realizing like, wow, I'm so happy to be able to be spending time with my son right now or just like going to the store and him mean mugging a person and me thinking is hilarious. There are, I'm just like noticing that being a parent now has really changed the perspective of how things were and getting published in an academic journal wasn't the biggest accomplishment that I could do. It's being a good mom and being a good partner and being with my family. And, and, you know, I went last weekend with my family and my son, and we just went um, to this event where uh, you go around and you look at the Christmas lights in the neighborhood. And we just had so much fun, and all we were doing was walking around. And that was just so much more meaningful than going to a conference and presenting my work. And so I think I just learned that I just have to enjoy the simple moments because in the end, I think that those are the ones that I'm going to be thinking about the most and not like that one time I presented at a conference and three people asked me questions. So I think that it kind of put everything into perspective where I went from school being number one and school being the best thing for me and school being where I got my validation to finding something else and finding that life is beyond the classroom and beyond my academic accomplishments. And um, it, it kind of provides me like it's nice when my happiness is not on, doesn't depend on other people um, because then that puts less pressure on me, I think.
Yeah, so those are our top 10 things that we learned um, this year. We'd love to hear uh, what you've learned or any feedback that you have. So feel free to email us at woke.ishpodcast at gmail.com. We were just checking our email this morning because we had been out for a couple of months and we realized that we missed some of the emails. So if you emailed us and reached out and we haven't, we are currently going through them right now. And so look forward to a response from us. Um, Also, feel free to follow us on Instagram at woke.ishpodcast. We try to um, engage with it as much as we can, but we're always looking for um, any collaborations, any ideas, anything that you might want to send our way. Next week is the Christmas holidays, and the week after that is New Year's Eve. I know not everyone celebrates Christmas or Hanukkah or anything, but if you do, you know, just spend some time with your family. Thank you so much for listening. Um, As always, we uh, look forward to hearing from you. Um, But until then, thank you and have a great weekend. Bye.